Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Screens designed to keep the bugs out. But as you can tell, they pop out very easy so a child could fall through that very easily. So we want to make sure that you have the window locks in place so we don't just rely on the screen for safety. Yeah, what you're hearing there is one tip to try to keep children and, uh, and very young children safe, especially as the weather starts to get warmer and more windows are opening up and more children are making their way out onto balconies. Now, I've been in the news business for over 30 years, and I remember when I started out, I was surprised at how many calls there used to be back in the days when you can listen to a police and emergency services scanner and hear the ambulance calls, fire department calls, with kids falling out of windows. Guess what? 2023, it's still a problem. Let's bring in Brian Twaits, Specie Emergency Health Services Paramedic, Public Information Officer. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, and it's good to have you, but I wish we didn't have you because I wish this was not a problem. What's going on here? We still continue to see this, don't we? Well, you know, it, it, it is a tragedy that could be avoided, and so that's why we always like to get the word out about it, especially with the heat coming. We want people to be you know, more cognizant of these you know, open windows and that the, the little ones can, they can get through those tiny little spaces pretty easy. How many calls are we talking about? How common is this? Well, it, it, it's quite common. I've myself, working as a paramedic in Vancouver for over 36 years, I've gone to numerous uh, events like this. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, we did a release with uh, BC Children's Hospital just a couple of weeks ago, and, and we're, we're already seeing numerous events happening this year as well. You know, parents listening to this often... Uh, or listening to this may be surprised that it is an issue. But uh, I myself, I remember when my son was younger, I still looked one day over at the window and thought, hey, that's not safe. After, you know, I've talked about hearing all the calls over the years and news stories dealing with uh, kids that have fallen out out of windows, I still forgot that one window in our house wasn't all that great. And our kid was a climber. I fixed it quickly. But is that the type of thing you're seeing? What are some of the tips? What can yeah, we do? That's exactly it. And, you know, one of the things I like to advise people to do is, especially when you're bringing, you know, a new baby home and, and everybody makes sure that they buy the little plugs for the electrical outlets. They make sure that they have drawer and cupboard locks so they can't get in and have an accidental poisoning. Just go that one step further and at the same time, buy some of these little window locks that you can pick up at any hardware store and put those in at the same time. So, like, proof your house before they, they even show up is what I'm saying. And, and exactly, you know, something you said, child was a climber. So you want to make sure that you keep uh, furniture and tables away from windows that can be opened as well. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, the access to the window and the window area. Let's also talk about balconies. Uh, we have quite a few balconies. It's balcony season. 
What do you find with that being a danger? Well, again, it's the, it's the same scenario. It's a fall from a great height. And we want to keep the kids, the little ones, especially the climbers, away from the balcony. So if it's a French door to the balcony, let's put a window lock or you know, a lock on that as well to stop them from being able to get out onto that balcony. Brian, if uh, people want to get some of the tips and figure out how to go ahead through their home and child-proof their home for this, what can they do? Where can they go? Well, every hardware store carries a lot of these little clips that, that are really, they're only about $5. And you can clip it onto your window. For example, if it's a window that slides up, you know, we recommend that you put it at about 10 centimeters because kids can get through uh, at about 12 centimeters. So, you know, put that lock on there. They're, they're like $5 at a local hardware. There's also uh, window locks for the ones that you can wind out that you can install to do the same thing, to stop them from opening, to, to avoid that sort of tragedy. You know, a lot of people, and we uh, found this too, they assume that uh, a screen is going to be okay, but if a young child puts their weight against a bug screen in a door, that thing's coming out. A hundred percent. And I think you just played that little clip there from uh, that press release that we did. You know, screens are fantastic for keeping the bugs on the outside, like I was saying, but, you know, they don't keep the kids on the inside. They pop out really easy for a reason, for cleaning, etc. So we want to make sure that if there's a window and a screen, that that window has got a secure lock on it. So what's the mission ahead for you in getting the message out? Is that it? And now we should just uh, be left our own, or are you going to reach out, continue to reach out? Well, I think you'll probably see our organization and others like uh, BC Children's Hospital trying to keep that message out, especially during the warmer season, because, you know, it's, it's getting warm. People want the ventilation. We want them to stay cool because we've got to avoid heat illness type injuries as well. So people are going to want to have their windows open to get that ventilation. And we agree. We want you to have that ventilation. But we also want you to think about the fall hazards. Thanks for being with us. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Let's talk about impaired driving and an interesting situation. We know that Surrey right now has the Surrey RCMP and the possibility of a transition to a Surrey Police Service. But right now, we have officers from both working next to each other, side by side. And it begs this as a question. Are Surrey DUIs different because of their policing decisions? You know, there are two police forces working in Surrey, and it's unclear whether and what the duties of the new municipal police, municipal police have taken on. How can this impact how DUIs are handled? Well, for that, we bring in Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. What an interesting situation and one that I haven't really thought of, but that's kind of a lie. I wondered about this in terms of a speeding ticket, but uh, I'll get to that because my question is a little bit different afterwards. What is your big uh, question here when it comes to DUIs? 
Well, how is enforcement really going to happen? You know, we're gearing up for the summer season. We usually see uh, summer counterattack roadblocks uh, starting around now. Um, there are, of course, regular roadblocks that happen throughout the year, although less uh, less frequently. And when we have two police forces that have very clearly expressed manpower issues with not having enough officers, both in the Surrey RCMP and in the Surrey Police Service, you don't have officers ready to man roadblocks. In addition, with all of the confusion surrounding the, uh, you know, who is actually going to be doing the policing and, and what decision is ultimately going to be made, um, the money that is usually given to police forces to put on roadblocks is also going to be an issue over the summer. And I don't expect that we're going to see much counterattack funding given in Surrey for roadblocks and for impaired driving enforcement. Kyla, I've already seen this. I've seen officers dealing or uh, at the side of a road dealing with some sort of issue that I'm not aware of. But Surrey RCMP officers right next to the other uniform, the Surrey Police Service, and I guess they're working together. I would extend that as possibly a thought, put the funding aside, that this would happen with counterattack. My question is, if it results in a charge and if one officer from one force ends up being the main lead officer on it, and that force doesn't exist six months or a year down the road, can the other just kind of slip in there? Is this something that a lawyer, a defense lawyer, would look at? <laughs> oh, it's definitely something that uh, the defense lawyers would look at. And, you know, officers, of course, can provide evidence even if they're no longer an officer. For example, if they retire uh, or if they transition into a different career, um, they can still come and bring evidence of their observations at the time. And as long as they were a peace officer at the time that they were doing the things that required them to be a police officer. But the difficulty is going to be keeping track of these people. If they leave policing, if they go to different municipal forces, um, if they get transferred to different RCMP jurisdictions, keeping track of officers um, becomes that much more complicated. And it increases the cost for the taxpayer as well. If it's an RCMP member, they can be brought back to testify. But then there's the cost of the flight and the hotel and all of the things that go along with bringing that officer into court um, that adds to the expense of prosecuting an impaired driving case. And in the meantime, of course, as people are leaving the jurisdiction and and transferring forces, evidence can tend to become lost or or compromised in the circumstances, which can then lead to great defenses for people charged with impaired driving. Well, I guess it comes down to, and you touched on this a bit, Kyla, but, uh, you know, what offenses are worth what investment? And when I think about uh, a DUI, that's got to be a step higher than, say, a speeding ticket. But even with a speeding ticket, if a officer is going to move to a different task or a different jurisdiction, in order to come back to be part of the appearance in court, as you pointed out, that could be very expensive. Um, do we see that playing into the system right now and even how it works? Like, is there a point where, I guess, police forces say it just ain't worth it? It's not worth us pursuing it. And we see that this is now being challenged. Ah, forget it. 
Absolutely. I've already had cases where there are police officers who were Surrey RCMP or sorry, Surrey police officers at the time that they issued a ticket. But with all of the chaos and confusion, they've they've quit the Surrey police service. They've gone to different policing authorities and the other municipal police forces are saying it's not worth it to have my officer off the road out of my municipality to go to traffic court. And because the Surrey police situation is, you know, is as confusing as it is, it's not worth it to them to try and pursue bringing those officers to court. So in a lot of those situations, we're seeing the officers not show up to court or their colleagues coming and saying they're no longer with the force. They're not going to be testifying in this case. We're going to call no evidence. Um, So it has been beneficial to people. But the consequence to that is that, you know, the things that the taxpayer is supposed to be getting in road enforcement, road safety enforcement, they are not getting. You mentioned in your release from Acumen Law that uh, it seems like there haven't been any roadblocks or counterattack roadblocks in Surrey for months. Seems. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, I would echo that as someone that lives in Surrey. But do you have any numbers to back that up? Or is this just a perception from your experience, knowing how many usual ones that we would have? I do not have any numbers to back this up. And there's actually a reason for that. Because in order to do a freedom of information request, which we would ordinarily be doing for things like the numbers of roadblocks and and calibration records for breathalyzers, we've been stonewalled in making those requests to the Surrey Police Service. They respond and say, well, we're not the police of jurisdiction, so we don't have to respond to a freedom of information request, which is not true. They're still a public body, (laughs) but they refuse to respond. They direct us to the RCMP, which then requires a go to Ottawa, and they're so backlogged that it takes months, if not years, to get responses to very basic requests. So we actually can't get the data to see how significantly this is actually impacting people as far as enforcement on any road safety issues. Isn't that a risky thing to be saying right now to in any sort of circumstance, if you're with the Surrey police, that could be used against you, couldn't it? Uh, Saying that we are not the force of jurisdiction, you can use that and say, hey, we've got documentation Uh, that this isn't the force of jurisdiction. Now you've got a Surrey Police Service officer in court. Uh, Would you use that? I mean, it would. I think it would be very difficult to use it successfully in court to say that the officer lacked jurisdiction. I think a judicial finding would be made that the officer is still a peace officer under the meaning of the Police Act in British Columbia. Um, but certainly it's, it's fodder for cross-examination. And if the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner makes a ruling that they're not the police of jurisdiction and thus not subject to FOI requests, that type of ruling may have a little more precedential value in arguing the question of whether the officer had the authority to do what they were doing. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this rogue police and DUI investigations that you wrote about. Yes. So oftentimes, you know, most officers are out there, they're trying to do a good job. But every once in a while, you get officers who are either not trained properly, who convince themselves of an incorrect understanding of the law and start to adopt their own procedures. When you don't have a centralized police force that's um, organized and able to sort of put the resources into monitoring the work of their officers, you end up having rogue police officers who start to do things the wrong way. And this can be very costly for people who come across these officers and end up punished by them. What do you mean doing things the wrong way? What would be a typical example or a made-up example here? 
Whoa. <laughs> well, uh, examples of things that I've seen using reports that are uh, cut and paste where they just find and replace the name of the individual. Uh, I see that a lot um, in uh, Surrey right now. Um, not properly calibrating breathalyzers um, or bypassing certain requirements in the calibration check process, using expired devices to test people, using the wrong alcohol standard solution to check the calibration of the devices. Those are all things that are uh, things that I've seen. Um, that have happened in Surrey specifically. So you're seeing this in Surrey. We're talking about a lack of officers, and you see something that is different playing out in Surrey right now, if I understand you correctly. Yes. In other police forces, there's quite an organized mechanism used to keep track of breathalyzers, to keep track of when they're uh, due for their calibration checks, um, and to make sure that officers are given consistent training on enforcement methods roadside and brought up to date on case law. Um, But when you have uh, sort of this question of whether you're going to be the police for much longer, um, a lot of that stuff falls by the wayside. And when you don't have enough officers, you're not doing the training, the mentorship isn't happening, the supervision isn't happening, and shortcuts end up being taken. Yeah, you talk a little bit about the training and a pause on implementing some of the uh, cost-cutting measures now that the city is paying for it directly. It really is a bit of a question that's out there. And uh, I wonder if this is something where now I see a, a combined force doing regular traffic checks around Surrey. Do they also do counterattack? A combined unit? I haven't seen any counterattack roadblocks in Surrey since this whole transition to uh, the Surrey Police Service started. Um, they're, they're, you know, I deal with a lot of <laughs> DUI cases. Um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you, you know, sometimes upwards of 20 different files a week. And, you know, obviously not all of them are from Surrey. But to not see any evidence of any roadblocks in such a long period of time is a public safety concern. And whether it's that they don't have the resources, they don't have the training, or they don't have the funding, something needs to be fixed because we know that impaired driving is one of the number one killers on the road. And we need a police out there enforcing it consistently and visibly. Okay, let's take Surrey out of it. I'm just going to give you an observation. And my observation is this. I haven't seen as much enforcement when it comes to counterattack or speeding in the last couple of years, as I've seen in uh, years in the past, it looks like it's being reduced. Is it mostly that uh, this is more, I don't know, secretive or I shouldn't use the word secretive, but you know what I mean? Uh, they're doing a better job of hiding themselves or is there less enforcement? There is, in fact, less enforcement. Ever since the pandemic, um, there has been a real staffing crisis in police forces. Um, Police lost uh, a lot of members um, as a result of people's responses to vaccine policies. Um, People quit uh, policing, so there was a shortage there. There was a real difficulty in hiring and training new recruits with um, COVID restrictions being um, in place and and, um, encouraging people to join police forces, not wanting to be on the front lines, distrust of government, all of these things contributed to low levels of numbers of police. So police forces across the province are generally quite understaffed and stretched for resources. And when you have a choice between investigating violent crime and investigating situations where, um, you know, there's domestic abuse and and urgent situations that require your attention and putting on the planning to go park outside a a pub for a six-hour shift or to um, man a roadblock for, you know, eight hours over the course of an evening, 
those resources are just not being put into that ever since the pandemic. Yeah, triaging services and triaging enforcement. Kyla, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, here's an idea to help combat BC's housing supply and affordability crisis. Relocate your home. Yeah, the group Lighthouse, uh, an organization that focuses on circular practices in the built environment, has released a new report, a blueprint for change, they call it, that outlines home relocation as an environmentally beneficial strategy for creating affordable, high-quality housing right across the province. So now you're getting some of these interesting ideas coming up as we talk about unaffordable housing. Well, Gil Uron is the Managing Director of Strategic Innovations at Lighthouse. Gil, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Bruce. Nice to be here. Tell me a little bit more about this idea, what you're working on, and the blueprint, and what it outlines. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, the situation I think everyone is aware of, you. if you've ever driven down Canby Street in Vancouver or any major street in, in Victoria or Surrey or any major urban center, we are seeing um, homes being demolished in order to make way for densification and uh, new housing that meets uh, the, the needs, the, the growing needs and the crisis that we're facing around housing. But at the same time, um, there's this collateral damage where we are demolishing perfectly good homes, some of them you know, as, as young as 10 years old, going through this grand demolition uh, and these homes could provide housing if they were moved to ex-urban communities uh, and also avoid uh, huge amounts of waste that are entering our landfills. Is it because the cost? Let me just stop you there for a second, Gil. Is it because the cost of the house is just not worth the move? No, it's usually because it's kind of business as usual, uh, you know, Developers are used to that demolition model, you know, move that property off the site, clear the land so that they can start building as quickly as they can. But, you know, today uh, what we have, we have, an op- we have the ability to move these homes. And if we can't move them, we can deconstruct them um, fairly quickly uh, and, um, you know, retain the home and retain the value of that home and repurpose it. So it's, it's really just a matter of, it's a mindset, you know, we have to shift. In fact, we found that uh, with home moving, you know, the cost to actually move a home is n- no uh, greater than it would cost to demolish it. In fact, there's great savings to the homeowner and the developer. Uh, and we're proposing a model where there's a tax credit. The, um, the home can be moved to an um, ex-urban community, uh, to provided to a social housing association or a First Nation. A tax credit can be issued back to the homeowner or developer for the value of, of, the, uh, of the home. And so it really becomes a, you know, a very uh, financially positive situation for, for everyone involved. Does this work better in some areas than others? Areas where the price of land or the difference between the price of land and the price of the structure is not as great as it is in, say, an urban area like Vancouver? I think it makes um, great sense in, in, in urban areas with uh, high-value homes and and um, where property is um, expensive because uh, those homes have a higher value um, and there's more reason uh, for the homeowner to then 
um, uh, ha- have that that home moved. Uh, I don't think it really uh, impacts the the receiving community. Although the the bigger issue is really the logistics about move physically moving the home. We need it's it's much easier, obviously, to move homes in areas where there is uh, less. Um, impediment to to the move itself you know physical issues that have to logistics to to move that home and we uh one of the easiest ways to move them is by barge so many of the homes that uh we're looking at are moving them from uh, vancouver and lower mainland communities to other coastal communities we're talking with Gil Euron, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at Lighthouse. An interesting concept, Gil. What uh, areas around the Lower Mainland, you mentioned the barges, but what other areas are you seeing some interest, some uh, good quality questions about this in? Well, there's, you know, everyone we talk to is really interested in this idea. I think it's just not um, front and center in front of people's minds when they think about uh, developing uh, properties. So, uh, you know, as soon as we talk to First Nations communities or to local governments, there's great uh, interest expressed. And we are in conversation with a number of uh, municipalities and with a number of nations uh, to, you know, to facilitate and to to um, facilitate moves and also to build a model really that will allow us to move more homes. We have, we estimate over 600 high quality homes in Vancouver that are being demolished each year that could provide housing to other communities. And so, you know, part of that is a, we're proposing a number of options and solutions, um, options that we can, uh, policy drivers to uh, allow and to expedite this uh, and make it happen. And the policy drivers, are those going to be at the city, provincial, federal level? What are you, what are you pushing for? Yeah, so um, they're uh, primarily at uh, the municipal level, although the province does have a role to play in this. So we're looking at um, what we call early green removal permits, giving developers um, an incentive to move the home by giving them a a permit that allows them to access that home earlier to move it uh, and get the land. Um, Because one of the the barriers right now is that, especially uh, with deconstruction, and uh, it does take longer uh, to... um, to remove the home than it would with uh, by demo- demolishing it. Um, the other thing we're uh, looking at is a refundable deposit so that a developer has to um, put down a deposit. And once the home is removed, um, moved or, or deconstructed, then that uh, deposit is returned to them. That That is um, something that a number of cities already have, like Victoria, uh, District of North Vancouver, uh, they will already, ha- already have that in place, and we'd like to see that uh, implemented yeah. um, uh, in all municipalities. Interesting idea, Gil Euron. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Some news from BC Ferries, and it's getting a great deal of attention. And these things often do because people have their passions when it comes to traditions associated with BC Ferries. Have you heard this? The Pacific Buffet. It's gone for good. It's been on hold since the start of the pandemic, but now it's not going to be coming back. President and CEO of BC Ferries, Nicholas Jimenez, joins us now. Nicholas, got to ask you, why this decision not to bring back Pacific Buffet? Well, it is is a difficult decision, but one we had to make. Uh, we know that there was a, a small but very loyal following to the buffet. 
But as we moved out of the pandemic and, you know, into the sort of the new normal that we're, we had to take a look at our business and we had to look at what was right for 2023. And the buffets essentially were a part of the business that we couldn't make work today. There's a couple of reasons for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. One, uh, it takes a lot of people to run the buffets. And that might surprise folks because generally buffets are considered to be pretty efficient way to serve food. But for us, it would have meant another 60 to 70 to 80 people just to staff the buffet on this one vessel. And as you know, we're struggling with crewing today. So we needed everybody that we can to do the work that's needed to get the vessels running. The other thing was cost. Um, people probably don't know, but we were losing over a million dollars a year running the buffet. Uh, and when you think that only, what, 8 9% of people actually use the buffets on those trips, I don't think it's fair for, you know, the vast majority of our customers to be subsidizing that, that service. Yeah, that surprises me. When you think a buffet, you think it uh, kind of runs itself, but that's not the case. No, and it's because of a number of factors. I mean, one, the cost of food is very high, as you know. Uh, certainly coming out of the pandemic, uh, it, the costs have gone up a lot. Food supply, chains, reliability, et cetera, all of those things have really impacted the business. And when we looked at what we could, what we would have to do to price the product to actually be sustainable, with a 30% price hike, we were probably still going to lose money. And so, so for us, it was it was a difficult, but ultimately, you know, the right decision to move forward. And what what's really good though is that we're turning this around to say, look, these are wonderful spaces on our vessels. People we know love not just the food offering, but but where they are physically located. Great views uh, of the trip. And so we want to reopen those spaces, but we want to do it in a different way. So that's why we're asking customers to help us reimagine a different future. Yeah, uh, let's those wonderful spaces on our vessel. Nicholas Jimenez, uh, CEO of BC Ferries. Let's talk a little bit about that future of the space and the online survey that's underway now. Well, sure. And people can go uh, either to our website <clears throat> to, to access the survey. It's a very short survey. And we're asking very basic questions. You know, what kind of food offerings would you be looking for? What's important to you in the space? Is it, is it uh, a quiet space? Is it a space for family? Um, and, and when it comes to pricing, what are the things that motivate you to either think about or not think about going into a space like that? So we're trying to gather as much insight and input as we can. And then again, design an offering that really fits the business as we find it in 2023. Let's pull back the curtain a little bit and find out a little bit more about you. What do you enjoy when you go on a BC ferry? Oh, well, there's a lot. I'm on, I'm on the vessels every single week. Uh, I live in North Vancouver, but I, I commute to Victoria. Uh, and then I'm always around uh, the rest of, of our sort of coastal business as much as I can. I love... I love the protected waterways, the coastal um, shores that we have here in British Columbia. They're, they're spectacular. I was recently on a trip uh, positioning our northern expedition vessel from uh, Richmond all the way up to Port Hardy so we could begin its summer travel to Prince Rupert. And I've got to tell you, it is just spectacular. And we are so privileged to live in this part of the world. And being on a ferry and experiencing that kind of beauty, I, I feel lucky every single time I'm on it. I know BC Ferries... Uh transportation is the key thing here but there is that experience does food play into it do you think is food still a priority well I, our customers sure tell us that i mean we and we we generate about 60 to 70 million dollars in 
the various food offerings that we have on all of our, you know, uh, 30 plus vessels. Um, so certainly that's something customers want. And obviously it's, it's up to us to figure out a way to do it sustainably, um, both at a price point that is, is affordable, but also in a way that doesn't create a lot of additional waste. As you know, running any food business, you know, that, that's a concern. And today with sustainability and net zero being uh, something that's, you know, important for all businesses, not just ours. We have to think about that. So I think people want a food service, and it's it's really for us to figure out how to how to deliver that effectively, uh, and in a way that sort of addresses their particular de- desires. Now, if you go south of the border uh, to Washington State Ferries, you'll get a different experience when it comes to food service, and passengers there have decided that's appropriate for them. So, so here in British Columbia, I think I think people have spoken with their with their <laughs> I was going to say with their mouths. Um, but certainly with their wallets, they they like the service, they want the service, and we're happy to provide it. Yeah, you talked about the difference with the Washington State Ferries. Uh, for those who aren't aware, what is the different approach with BC Ferries compared to Washington? Well, um, I would say the the quality of food is is different. I think the range of offerings is different. We partner with White Spot uh, on some of our our more popular routes here in the Lower Mainland, uh, and so we have a, we have put a lot of time and energy into menu design, uh, et cetera. So I think the, the the quality and the diversity of food that you would find on our vessels would be different. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to uh, cast dispersions on Washington State Ferries. I know the folks who run it, and they do a great job, um, but they've decided to run it a different way, and I think it's entirely appropriate for people there, just like it is for us to do what we do here. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. BC Ferries now wanting customers to help them decide the future of the Pacific Buffet space. This after the difficult decision to move on from the all-you-can-eat food service that happening on the Tawasin to Swartz Bay route. BC Ferries was initially forced back in March of 2020 to suspend it. It was supposed to be temporary and that because of the spread of COVID, it has not come back And now, as of yesterday, we know it will not be coming back. So the question comes, what about that space? What do we want to see there instead? Well, there is an online service or survey that's open for three weeks asking you, travelers, for feedback on what that space should really have. It took up a lot of room to have a buffet. You think of the big big lines and also the food buffet itself. So in the meantime, while the decision is taking place on what to do about the space, the buffet dining room will be open to provide customers extra seating during the peak summer travel season coming up. Food and beverage services are still going to be available in the Coastal Cafe, the Sea West Lounge, and the Arbutus Coffee Bar. All that information coming out yesterday. But let's be frank, and since we have the president and CEO of BC Ferries, Nicholas Jimenez, spending time with us, got to ask, BC Ferries has been struggling with staffing issues resulting in cancellations and delays, notably at some pretty busy times. So are you ready for the summer? Are you prepared for the next few long weekends? Well, look, I'm going to be honest. It's going to be a tricky summer. There is no question. We we have staffed up considerably. So we've hired more than 800 people in anticipation of increased demand in the summer. And even with that incredibly you know, robust hiring, we know that we're going to run thin on a number of our routes. So that means 
you know, we are prepared to run those sailings and we have obviously uh, put them up in our schedule and we have people making reservations. Uh, and there may well be times when we are not able to run a particular sailing on a particular day. And I think that's true um, on most of our routes. So I think we're prepared and I think people have to also be prepared that we might run into challenges. I'll put a little bit of context to it. And I know it's really frustrating for anybody who's had a sailing canceled, but uh, you know, more than 98.5% of our sailings run uh, as scheduled. So we have a very small number that are canceled. The challenge is, it, whether it's one or 10, if it happens to you, it's very frustrating and you don't really care about the 98.5% statistic. All you know is that your travel is disrupted. And so we understand that, but we also want people to understand that you know, we are sailing the vast, vast, vast majority of our sailings. Of course, day. of course. But if you are stuck on, say, Bowen Island without a way to get off the island, boy, that really hurts the confidence of people living there or buying property there, doesn't it? Well, it was challenging. You know, if you're obviously referring to what happened on the Maylong weekend. You know, on that, that weekend, we canceled six sailings on Saturday afternoon and evening to Bowen Island. Now, I will say we did run 43 water taxis, and we were able to transport almost 1,000 people back and forth. Uh, we were running, I think, that service up until about 11 o'clock when the last person who wanted to either get to the island or get off the island uh, was, was taken where they needed to go. You know, we provided... Uh, free sailings for folks the next day to get uh, their vehicles back if they had to leave them on either side. Uh, and we have a compensation program, making it right uh, when there are instances where you uh, are put in harm's way because we've, we've made a, a cancellation uh, without any um, without any notice, uh, and, and we, we provide compensation. So there's a lot of things we try to yeah. do to recover. We know we can't make it right in that very moment for somebody who wants to go somewhere, but we did a lot to bring a recovery to what was a really unfortunate situation. Final question I want to ask about, because this has come up in the last week with another private company trying to make a go of it uh, on a run from downtown Vancouver to Nanaimo, a passenger ferry service. Would BC Ferries ever consider such a service, uh, a passenger service from Vancouver to Nanaimo, doing that again? Right now, that's not in our plan. Uh, we're obviously going to watch uh, the, the the new service offering. I really hope they're successful, and I hope they found uh, a niche market for for the for the particular business that they're trying to mount. Uh, and we really do wish them the best of luck. But you know, we're going through a process in the next year with our, our two boards and with government to sort of take a step back and imagine what the ferry system needs to look like, not in five years, but in 15 and 20 and 30 years. And certainly that'll be a question we ask ourselves as we go through that process. But in the very near term, it's not something we're looking at. And when you take a look at that, who's doing it right around the world? Uh, who do you look to with a comparable system to or comparable challenges to BC Ferries and say, well, they've got it. They've nailed it. Well, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Ferry operators around the world are struggling with the very same issues that we are. Uh, if you were to talk to our colleagues Washington State Ferries, you would probably have a very identical conversation, certainly when it comes to crewing, but also when it comes to looking at uh, sustainability, uh, et cetera. You know, and the same is true in Europe. There's a, there's a real challenge in the global mariner community, uh, attracting people into that industry, getting them to see it as a viable career. Uh, and, and that obviously has an impact on all of us, whether we're operating here in North America or in Norway 
or, or on other parts of Europe. Um, but, you know, we're, people don't know this. We're actually one of the largest ferry operators in the world. A lot of people look to us yeah. um, for best practices. Obviously, we look around the world. Uh, Australia's got a great ferry system. Uh, Norway and some of the other Scandinavian countries have a great ferry system. Uh, you obviously see a lot of ferries running uh, in the Mediterranean and other parts of Asia. So I would say we're, we're constantly looking abroad to understand what we can do differently, what technology we can use, different operational practices, et cetera, and hiring. A lot of our staff come from, uh, from uh, overseas, and they work all over the world. It's something people probably don't know, uh, but we're very proud to have a very, very diverse staff uh, from really all parts of Incredible to see you. And thank you so much, Nicholas Jimenez, President and CEO of BC Ferries.